So it's the fourth Sunday, and though we're supposed to have a bring and share, we can't have that. We're also supposed to continue this series called Why Believe? And it's a series we've been doing this year, wanting to give reasons for our faith. Why should we believe? And of course, one of the big questions that always gets asked of us, I'm sure you've had this asked to you, is how can there be a God of love when there's so much suffering in the world? It's usually one of the first questions that gets asked. And it's a big question. It's a legitimate question. It's one that that we should think about ourselves as believers. But because it is such a big and legitimate question, it needs a substantial answer. I don't think I can do that in one Sunday. And so I was wrestling through this this week and saying, Lord, what am I supposed to do? How, How should I put this together? And I felt like the Lord said to me, go to Psalm 5. And as I read Psalm 5, I thought, this is a great psalm for us as Jesus followers to answer this question to ourselves. Because let's be honest, it's not just the people out there who ask us as as Jesus followers, hey, how can there be a God of love when there's so much suffering? But we ourselves sometimes ask that question. God, I thought you loved me. If you love me, how come my car won't start? Or how come I didn't get that job promotion? Or how come that person keeps slandering me? God, if you love me, why are these things happening? Why is there still so much injustice that I experience if you love me? And I think it's really important that we as Jesus followers learn to be able to have a peace about the answer to that question, why does God allow suffering? We ourselves need to get to a place where we can be We can say like the hymn writer, it is well with my soul when things are difficult. And that doesn't happen just by theological understanding. We need theological understanding. We're going to talk about that today. But it happens by experiencing the goodness of God, especially in our prayer life. In fact, next month we'll probably look at, on the fourth Sunday, we'll look at part two of this and talk about why there's God allow suffering. And we'll deal with more of the philosophical questions and, and how we might deal with those things intellectually and biblically. But I think before we do that, we first have to settle in our hearts, do we, as Jesus followers, do, are we okay with the fact that there's still suffering? Is it motivating our prayer life? Is it causing us to long for God more? Now, Psalm 5 is a, is a psalm that's often called a mourning psalm because, of course, in verse 3, David says he's going to pray these things or, in the morning. Now, obviously, this psalm was a psalm that was meant to be sung. It was like a prayer put to music, which all the psalms really are, a prayer put to music, and it was meant to be sung publicly. There's no doubt about that. The fact that David inspires uh, in the... In the uh, um, in the original, in the inspired writings in the Hebrew, this, this direction to the chief musician with flutes uh, is David who wrote this. So this is meant to be in the inspired writings. So David's wanting this to be sung publicly. But it's, 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 it's thought to have been something that was sung publicly in the morning. It was, a, it was like the morning devotion that you would do publicly. Maybe as the priests were offering the morning sacrifices, the people would sing this psalm who were around. But what's interesting is that even though the psalm is, is a psalm that's directing us when we should pray in the morning, it's really not so much about when, but who we pray to. 
And I don't know about you, but this is the thing that I've found is the most important aspect of my prayer life. When my prayer life is faltering, it's because I'm allowing to creep into my mind ideas about God that aren't true. It's not just maybe I've lacked some discipline or, or that um, you know, maybe God didn't answer a prayer that I wanted them to. It's because I've allowed wrong ideas about who God is to creep into my mind. And so I'm not praying to the God of Scripture. I'm praying to a God that maybe I'm hoping will just make me feel better or maybe I'm just praying to feel better. And so I, I believe that what the Holy Spirit wants to do is, is use this to teach us, to remind us who it is we're praying to. That we would be able to pray to the God who in His goodness has allowed suffering to be a part of our life. And then we would grow in a place that we can end as this psalm ends with great shouts of joy. So I want to kind of basically give you four things. You probably have a handout. Four things about this God we pray to in answer to what about suffering. The first thing we see is David is praying to the God who hears. Notice he says, give ear to my words, Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry. You see that David here is desperate for God's intervention. He's using what's called a Hebrew parallelism, where you kind of say the same thing three times in a row for emphasis. He's, he's, it's like he's crying out, God, do you understand how desperate I am for you to be hearing me? So David isn't just saying his prayers because he feels guilty. He's not just saying his prayers because he thinks, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. He's not just trying to do something that would make a nice corporate worship song. He is desperate for God's intervention. And so because he's desperate, he vocalizes that desperation. He says, consider my meditation, which some translations say uh, murmur or lament or complaint. It's the idea of something that's troubling him. So he's been thinking about this, it's troubling him. But he doesn't just keep thinking about it. He doesn't just keep musing on his problems. He begins to voice those out to God. He actually speaks them out to God. He says that, for to you I will pray. My voice, he says, you shall hear in the morning. Take, he said in verse 2, right? Give heed to the voice of my cry. He's describing a, a prayer that is, God, please help. I wanna, I'm telling you, this, these are all the things that are on my mind. Now, this is one of the things that we don't always do. We often, maybe it's our personality, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's what we've, we've the, the church culture we've been a part of, I don't know, but we often don't vocalize our desperation before God. Even when we are convinced, I really should be praying more. Have you ever found yourself, you start praying and you're just so formal in your prayers? Okay, I'll pray the Lord's Prayer. Not a good, bad place to, to start. You know, our Father is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Great thing to pray. And you kind of think, okay, I feel better, and I'll pray this, okay, I feel better. And you're just, you're really not praying out of desperation. You're not voicing what's really the thing that, that's most burdened on your heart. You're just formalizing some prayers because it's, you think, the right thing to do. But David's not doing that by example, and therefore David's not doing that by instruction. He wants us to actually vocalize our prayers. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that God doesn't hear our prayers if we're praying silently. It's not like God doesn't know our thoughts. God does know our thoughts. And by the way, Satan doesn't know your thoughts. He can maybe guess what you're thinking, but he can't read your mind. Only God can read your mind and know your heart. But he knows our thoughts, so it's not as if... And he even says, I'm going to answer before you ask. He knows what's the desires of our hearts. 
but he calls us, listen, to vocalize our desperation for him, our need for his intervention, to, to speak it out. Now, I have to say this, too, because unfortunately there's a stream of teaching in the church that says what we speak out becomes reality. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches what God speaks out becomes reality. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what we speak out doesn't become reality. So sometimes we're afraid to be negative because if I speak too negative, then everyone, negative things are going to happen. No, that's, that's rubbish. That's superstition. It's not Bible. No, we need to cast our cares on God. We need to vocalize our desperation before God. How can we talk about suffering in the world if we are not dealing with our own suffering, if we're just trying to put some sort of religious covering over our suffering, as opposed to saying, God, here it is. And so he, he vocalizes his desperation. And it's interesting, too, because it's obvious that, that David knew who he was praying to, didn't it? The God who hears is also, he says in verse 2, my king and my God. Now, when David's writing this, who is he? He's king. He's king of Israel. But David knows, uh, I might be king, but he's king of kings. And he's my God. David is recognizing God as the one who is completely in authority. Now, he, he uses his covenant name as well. In, the, in verse 1, he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. And we'll talk about that reality that God is a covenant-making God when we get to verse 7. But notice he says, My God and my king, he's recognizing God as the God of all authority. Do you remember when the centurion comes to Jesus and says, Lord, please help, my servant is sick. And the Lord makes it clear that he's willing to go with a centurion to go heal his servant. But what does the centurion say? Listen to this. You can look it up later. This is Matthew chapter 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve that you, to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard that, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. What was this man's great faith? He understood the authority of Jesus. He understood, he understood hey, if I say do this, those under me do what they're supposed to do. But this situation, this sickness of my beloved servant is not under me. I don't have authority over it but I know who does. So Jesus, you say the word, and it's done. Now, David's understanding this, that he has the, the ear of, he is desperate for, and he has the ear of the God who hears. You know, all religions pray, but not all religions expect there's a personal God who's going to hear and answer. We have a God who hears the King of Kings, the one who has all authority, the one in any given situation can say the word and it's sorted. Now, he's not just the God who hears. He's also, and this is, uh, this is tough for us to swallow, especially, especially in our present Western society. He is also the God who hates. That's what it says, isn't it? It says in verse 5, you hate all workers of iniquity. 
That's what David says under the inspiration of the Spirit. Now, I, I'm, I have to be honest. I didn't want to talk about this. I wanted to somehow try to smooth this over and lighten it up, especially as an American who, for the record, did not vote for Donald Trump. But there is a lot of hate going on in the United States, isn't there? And the age of social media, there's a lot of hate that's expressed, not just there, but here. I mean, we have our own problems with Brexit, don't we? As far as people hating on each other is what I'm talking about. And we live in a day and age where people will, will spew out hate so quickly. I, I don't want to use the word hate, but I have to because the Scripture uses the word hate. So we need to understand what we mean. I want to make sure that I'm being really clear about what do I mean by the God who hates? Well, listen, David is saying, God, you are not a God who takes any pleasure in wickedness. And notice he, 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 he talks about, he seems to be describing not just actions, but a people. He seems to be here referring to a category of people. He talks about the boastful in verse 5. He talks about the workers of iniquity in verse 5. He talks about, in verse 6, the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. He's referring to a category of people. He is talking about their actions, but he's basically saying their status, the, the reason they're in this category, that's demonstrated by their actions. But he's saying this is the, they're in a category. They're, they're a group of people. Now, Jesus said the same thing. In Matthew chapter 7, again, you can look it up later. Jesus says in Matthew 7, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruits, you will recognize them. In the context, Jesus is probably talking about false teachers. But there is a reality that this is, this is a principle here that, that David as well is talking about, that, you know what, there's a group of people that are hostile to God, that are unbelieving, and those people are identified by their deeds, by their bloodthirstiness and their deceitfulness, by their boasting, their mockery of God. Now, it's interesting, too, because it's also not just their deeds, but their speech that reveals their hearts. If you drop down to verse 9, David's continuing to describe the same sort of category of people, and he says, for there's no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Again, Jesus said a similar thing. And this time he's talking directly to the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. Jesus says to them in Matthew 12, 34, brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, it's important that we see that, that, that David is saying, look, these people are, are in this category. These people whose, whose lifestyle demonstrates that they're in rebellion to God uh, and that their uh, speech uh, uh, demonstrates that they're in rebellion to God, these people are those that God says he, or you know, according to David, God says that he hates them, that he abhors them, that he will destroy them. Now, let me say something really clear. If you hear that, and that you think that sounds unfair, it's probably because you don't see yourself as that bad. That's probably where it comes from. You don't see yourself as that bad. But also, it's probably because you don't understand something that David understood. David understood that God's love requires God's hate. 
You see, we tend to think love and hate are opposites. I love this person, I hate this person, but actually they tend to come together. Here's, here's what I mean. If you really love somebody, you hate anything that would want to destroy them. Now, if we are people who have a bent towards evil, and we are, the Scripture's clear about that. We'll talk more about that in a second. If we are people who have a bent towards evil, in other words, we, whether we want to admit it or not, or, or we can see it or not, we want to do things that destroy us. And God loves us. He also simultaneously hates our sinful nature that wants to destroy us. You see, the opposite of love, biblically, really isn't so much hate as it is apathy. Don't care. Doesn't matter. Can't be bothered. But because God has such a love for the world, He hates those that would destroy those that bear the image, His image, including us. This is hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us to accept this. It's hard for us to see this, but we need to see this. In fact, if you look at verse 9 and 10 again, or especially verse 10, uh, what, what does David say? He, what is he praying? He's saying, Lord, pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgression, for they have rebelled against you. Cast them out. What is he talking about? Don't let them be among your people is what he's kind of saying. Now, what David is asking for here is justice. It, it seems to indicate, we don't know the specific situation in which David would have maybe wrote this psalm, but there seems to be an indication that David was feeling the pressure from people in his own kingdom. People who wanted to slander him. People who wanted to speak against him. People who wanted to complain against his reign. And he's saying, Lord, these people are speaking against you. You, you know, we need justice. Please cast them out. Now, I think it's important we recognize this as well. If you go back to verse 9, th- these words that you see, their throat is an inward part. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, the inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. If you can keep your finger in Psalm uh, 5 and turn with me to Romans chapter 3, I want to show you something that's really important that I think will help us get our head around this idea of the God who hates and why that's important to understand and believe. So Romans chapter 3, so you go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Romans chapter 3, because the Apostle Paul who wrote Romans actually quotes this verse among another list. I'm going to read you the whole list in Romans chapter 3. Paul starts asking this question in verse 9 of Romans 3. He says, what then? Are we, being the Jews, better than they, that is, the Gentiles? Not at all, he says, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. In other words, all are born into sin, all are slaves to their sin. Look what he says, verse 10. As it is written, now from verse 10 down to verse 18, he's quoting all Old Testament verses. He's doing what's called the string of pearls, tying together all these different verses to make one singular point. Here's what he says. There is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And then look at verse 13. He's quoting Psalm 5. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceits. Their poison of asps is under their lips. He continues, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is taking all these verses. He's not, he's not saying this, all these verses describe each individual in humanity. He's saying all humanity fits in these verses. That the fallenness, the brokenness of who we are in humanity is described by these kinds of actions. And because God so loves humanity, He hates that they do this to each other. That we do this to each other. He's a God of justice. Therefore, when we do injustice towards each other, it grieves His heart. He abhors it. He detests it. Let's think about this for a second. Let's think about how important this is to understand this is part of the goodness of God. When you watch the news, if you watch the news or you read the newspaper or you look at it online, I don't know where you get your information, but if you watch the news and you hear about some tragedy, tragedy somewhere in the, in the world, oh, there's an earthquake, 110 people died, oh, that's horrible. Hey, they found one though, that's good, they rescued one, huh? Hey, what's for dinner tonight, honey? Did you hear about that girl in Norwich? She got raped. Oh, that's horrible. I can't believe that girl got raped. Wow. Okay, I'm going to make sure my daughters don't go out as much or <laughs> whatever the case might be. Okay, what's on the telly today? Did you hear about that sister at church whose mom has dementia and doesn't recognize her anymore? Gosh, that must be painful. I should probably call my mom. Ah, maybe next week. See, I'm giving these examples. I'm not trying to condemn you or me. What I'm trying to do is say, can we be honest? Isn't this what we do? We hear about horrible injustices. We hear about pain and suffering, and we kind of like go, wow, too bad, especially if we're doing okay. But then when we suffer, we go, God, where are you? But God is a God of justice. There's another psalm that says he's angry with the wicked every day. He is the one who wants to bring justice. He wants to end the suffering. Christian, do you believe that? Jesus follower, do you believe that? See, Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 3, hopefully you're still there, if you drop down to verse 23, he goes on to say this, listen, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance God has passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, God's been patient not to just judge everyone. Why? Because He wanted to save through Jesus to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be, listen, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why am I reading you those verses? 
Because the prayer that David asked for, God, bring justice. You hate these people. You hate that they're doing these things. You hate that they rebel against you. Bring justice. This is how God answered the prayer. He sent his only beloved son, his only begotten son, who hung on a cross and took on that very wrath that those evildoers deserve so they might be forgiven. Do you believe this? Now going back to Psalm 5, can you, can you see why I'm saying if we don't understand this as Jesus followers, all the philosophical arguments about suffering are going to be kind of trite, pointless, and maybe even offensive. Do we actually believe there's a God who hates injustice so much that he sent his son to absorb all of it so that whoever would believe and turn to him would be forgiven? Don't get me wrong, there's still a judgment to come for those who, who don't put their faith in Christ, but there's a reality that this prayer that, that David's praying is answered that way. You see, it's, it's funny how we will talk about non-believers as only in the, in, the, in the essence of victims. Oh, you know, they're a pretty nice guy. They just had a rough life. And man, if they would just come to know Jesus, then they'd feel better about their life and things would be better. Listen, we're all victims of sin. Don't get me wrong. And we should have compassion on each other because we're victims. But guess what we also are? We're all perpetrators. And a just God should judge us. And he's done so in Christ if we'll put our faith in Christ. This is important. It's important for us to, to see the God who takes sin seriously, that he hates sin, so that we're actually praying, God, would you deal with it? Would you do something radical? This is why we don't preach repentance anymore. We don't call people to repent. Why? We don't think sin's that big of a deal. And because we don't think sin's that big of a deal, we don't think the cross is that big of a deal. But we understand that God is a God who so hates sin and so loved the world, that's why he sent his son. Now, hopefully you guys know where I'm coming from in this, and I'm not encouraging you to go around going, God hates you, sinner! <laughs> That's not really going to do much good. They don't understand at all the context. But if you understand the context, you will take their sin seriously and say, there's a just God who we stand before who will judge all of us, me and you, and my only hope and your only hope is the work of Christ. And because he's alive, we can know that's enough. So David's praying to this God who hates. But he also, listen, verse 7, he's praying to the God who gives hope. Notice the contrast, verse 7. He says, but as for me, I will come into your house in what? The multitude of your mercies, literally the abundance of your loving kindness. The word mercy, a little Hebrew word, super important Hebrew word, kased, or chased, depending on how you pronounce it. It's often translated kindness, loving kindness, mercy, compassion. It speaks of God's covenantal love. It's similar to the word in the New Testament for grace, getting what we don't deserve. The, 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 why God makes this contract with us, this loving contract. It's what a covenant is. It's a, it's a contract of love. It speaks of his loving 
kindness that he's given to us by making a covenant with us. So when David says, look, as for me, he didn't say, as for me, I'm going to come into your house because I'm not a bloodthirsty man. Well, David actually was a bloodthirsty man. He had blood on his hands. I'm not a worker of iniquity. No, David knew. He wrote Psalm 51 as well. Lord, I'm born in iniquity. No, he knew he would go into the house of God, listen, because of the multitudes of God's, the abundance of God's covenantal love for him. We would say in the New Testament sense, because of what Jesus has done for us. Because we know that's enough. See, this is really important because David is completely confident in his place, of his place in God's presence. Notice he says, I will come into your house. He says, I will worship towards your holy temple. You know what's interesting about this? There was no temple yet. Not an earthly temple. Oh, there was a, ta- a tent, a tabernacle, and, and David wanted to rectify that. He wanted to build a temple. But what did God say? God said, I don't need you to build me a temple, but I'm going to bless you. Let your son build a temple. And so his son Solomon would build this temple and God would dwell in this temple and bless this temple. And so some think, okay, David wrote this thinking, okay, one day I'm going to pray towards that temple that my son's going to build. But you know what I think? I think it was something bigger. I think he's thinking about the place where God dwells. Listen to this. This is Isaiah 66. This is uh, from the New Living Translation. Listen to this. This is what God says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? My hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now this is important because I think David is thinking about this reality. Yes, he knows there's going to be an earthly temple, but he understands the revelation of God that God will show up there, but God doesn't need to be there. God doesn't need that house. So when he's talking about God's house, I believe he's talking about this reality, this amazing thing where heaven and earth intersect and we get to be in the presence of God. And David, listen, David is completely confident that he has a place in the presence of God. Why? Because God's the one who made the covenant. God's the one who made the promise. God's the one who made the provision. Do you believe that? Do you have that hope? You know what hope is? It's an expectation of good. Do you believe, as David said in Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm going to be face to face with the creator of the universe who I'm going to cry out to, Daddy. And he's personally going to wipe away every tear from my cheek. And he's going to hold me like no person ever has. And we're going to celebrate for eternity. Why? Because I'm not an evildoer? I'm a good guy? No, I'm a wretch because he's made covenant with me. That's why we have confidence. That's why David had confidence. He prayed to this God of hope that way. But notice also quickly, verse 8, David says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. He says, Make your way straight before my face. Now, do you understand what he's saying here? When he says, because of my enemies, he, David recognizes, look, what my enemies want to do is distract me from God. Do you, know, do you realize that's what your enemies want to do? I'm not talking about the people who speak badly about you. Uh, or I'm talking about not flesh and blood, but our enemy, according to Ephesians 6, principalities and powers, demons and the devil. 
He's a liar and the father thereof. And he uses people, no doubt, and demons use people, no doubt. But there's a reality. What the people want to do might just be do something they selfishly want to do or they have a bad attitude. But what the enemy wants to do is put something between you and God so you can't see God as he is. David's saying, because of my enemies, Lord, please. He says, because of my enemies, lead me. I need you to lead me. Notice he says, and make your, your way straight before me. He's saying, please, remove these distractions so I can just see you. That's what he's asking for. See, David's not just confident of his place in God's presence. He knows he's dependent on God's work for his own walk. God, you've got to do this work. I can't walk with you today unless you help me today. Remove distractions. See, often, here's what we do when we pray in the mornings. Here's what, at least here's what I tend to do. I'm tempted to do. God, help me get all my agenda done. Provide this. Help me get this done. And I'm not saying that's wrong. It's a good thing to pray. But you know what we need to be praying? Say, Lord, help me, the, help me to see everything on, my, on this agenda as an opportunity to see your face. Every person I serve is a person I can, I can turn that into worship. Every act that I do, that can be an act of drawing near to you. God, you make my way straight. Make sure I can see your way straight, that none of this becomes a distraction. But all these lists on this agenda, these things after they get done, they're all things that point to you. Yes, your dissertation can help you be closer to Jesus. It can happen. <laughs> yes, your horrible boss can help you be closer to Jesus. It can happen. Your kids that are driving you nuts can help you actually get closer to Jesus. When we say, Lord, help them not to be a distraction to you, but a means to you. David's praying this way. He, has, he sees the God whom he expects good from. God, God, are you that good? God, can you take the difficulties in my life and turn them into an opportunity to know you? Not only can he, he does. He is. He's doing it now. We don't even always see it. We have a situation that we need to pray about as a church. We had two great interns last year, Ben and Hannah. Hannah's moved on to York. Ben's here but no longer is an intern we have a great administrator, Ollie. He's the bomb. He's done a great job. He's taking us to the next level. We don't have replacements for Ben and Hannah. That means about 30 to 60 hours a week of, of pretty much free labor is missing. So it was going to be me and Ollie that have to fit that in, but Ollie's given notice, not because he hates his job. He loves his job. But God's preparing them for the next step probably for him to be a pilot. So as of the first of the year, January, February, around that time sometime, he won't be on staff anymore. Now, okay, now I know you guys think that I only work on Sundays, but that's not the case. <laughs> Life is really, really busy, and I'll be honest, it's scary to think, what happens, Lord? If, what am I going to do if you don't provide for me? But you know what God says? Who am I? Who am I? I'm the God of hope. <laughs> I'm the God you can say, Lord, okay, I expect good. I don't know what that good's going to look like. And I expect, even as we're waiting for these things to fall into place, for you to bring the right people to fill these positions, I expect you to show yourself to me. Is that the God you're praying to? Why, God, why didn't you bring interns? Why didn't you replace? We even had some great people that we asked, and they're like, yeah, I'm excited. Then one by one said, no, thank you. No, thank you. 
No, thank you. No, thank you. What? But God's doing something good. God's wanting to make sure that this trial, this difficulty, is a way for us to see his face. Now, lastly, and I'm almost done. In verse 11 and 12, we see now the God who also hides us. Notice he says in verse 11, but let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Now the word for trust there, in fact, some, some of your versions might say, and this, this would be a better translation of this, take refuge in you. That's the idea. The idea is to take refuge, to hide. And this is important because he didn't say just take refuge or just find refuge. He's talking about take refuge in you. Let all those who rejoice who take refuge in you. In other words, he's saying, look, this is not just about holding on to this idea. Here's a concept. God's goodness in control. Mm, good concepts, let's hold on to that. No, he's talking about actively praying to that good God who's in control and hiding in his presence. In other words, finding that he is that refuge through prayer. All right, God, I'm coming to you because I want to hide in you. I need to hide under your wings. It's funny, when my, when my kids were little, well, I'll, I'll give a, hypoth- a hypothetical scenario that's kind of a conglomeration of many things that happened together, okay? Here's a story that is, is an analogy, I'll say. So I'm, I'm uh, pastoring or, or doing a youth ministry, uh, being a youth pastor at a church in California, and I go to pick my little daughter, Noelle, up from Sunday school. She's about two. And again, what happens? The Sunday school teacher says to me, Pastor John, Noel punched another boy in the face. And there's a mixture of emotions. There's pride. Yes. Pop it more. I'll put up with it. There's embarrassment. Oh, man, that violent nature has spilled over into my daughter. But there's also this sense of protection because on one of those occasions, one of the Sunday school teachers was quite critical. And when she starts telling me, this is what your child did. My child was guilty. Noel was guilty. What does Noel do? She runs and right next to me, wraps her arms around my leg like, help me, Dad. Now, she knows she's going to be busted for me. (laughs) But she'd rather have my wrath than that stranger's wrath. See, where do we hide when we sin? You know what we try to do? You know how we usually try to hide when we sin? We sow fig leaves together. We hide behind the bushes, just like Adam and Eve. But you know where we should hide? Right in his presence. God, forgive me. I just need to hide under the shelter of your wings. It's your righteousness and yours alone that means I can stand before you. You cleanse me from my sin. You wash me and I'll be clean, Lord. You're my Father. I can trust you. Not just holding on to an idea, hiding into his presence, but also, notice he uses these words, rejoice. He says in verse 11, let them ever shout for joy. You know what that means in Hebrew? Shout for joy. Man, we're so conservative, white people. We got to chill out a little bit. We should shout. He says, be joyful. Listen, I'm not talking about emotionalism. This is not just about feeling good, but about focusing your celebration. That we have something to be happy about. 
We have something to be joyful about. What do we have to be joyful about? We have a God who accepts us, who's made covenant with us. We have a God who hears us, who's going to bring justice against all that he hates, including in our lives. He's going to purify us because he hates our sins so much. We have a God who's given us hope. We have a God who hides us in the shadow of his wings. We have reason to celebrate. Thank you, Lord, you're that good. I'm not talking about emotionalism. I'm talking about feeling, just feeling good. I'm talking about celebration. In fact, that's a mistake that we sometimes make. Sometimes one of the mistakes that we can make is we can think, okay, as long as I'm feeling good in my celebration, then I'm rejoicing. You know, have you ever been into a situation where you maybe come into a situation and everyone's like celebrating? You know, like maybe you walk down the street and you hear some, whoa, there's like celebration going on. You're like, what's going on? And you just can't help but smile. Look, everyone's happy. Yeah, everyone's celebrating. Woo, what's going on? Yeah, what happened? Hey, we're celebrating great gay pride day. Oh, that's controversial, John. Don't go there. Don't worry. What we're going to do in the Why Believe series is God God anti-LGBT, and we're going to talk about that that he loves people. But you know what I'm saying? We wouldn't celebrate that as Christians. At least we shouldn't be. But we can get pulled into it just because it's fun to celebrate. But he's not talking about that. What is he talking about? He's talking about focusing our celebration on God. He's talking about in him we should rejoice. To him we should shout for joy. In you we should be joyful, he says. It's interesting. I I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon, who was by no means a charismatic. Here's what he said. He said, The ungodly are not half so constrained in their blasphemy as we are in our praise. You guys know me well enough to know that I'm not one who likes hype. Don't like hype. Don't like emotionalism. But man... We should celebrate. We have a God we should praise. We should rejoice in. And notice he is saying this as one who still is suffering. Do you know, what, you know what's going to prepare us to be able to give a, credi- a credible philosophical answer to this idea that why does God allow suffering? Is when we, in our suffering, still celebrate Jesus. That's what's going to do it. Not our great intellectual answers, as important as it is for us to have our head around these things. No, is that we're shouting for joy even in the presence of our enemies. He prepares a table before him in the presence of our enemies. And it's also listed in verse 12. I'll finish with this. It's not just temporary help, but a permanent solution. He says, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. Wasn't God already do that? Why didn't he say, God has blessed the righteous, God has surrounded him with a shield? Why didn't he already say that? Because he's looking for something in the future as well. Our best life isn't now, but we do have a best life to come. We do have something to celebrate in the future. There's a permanent solution to suffering that has already been set in motion by Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of his spirit that he will complete when he returns. When he comes the same way he left, he's going to complete what he started. Yeah, it's going to be scary. He's going to bring judgment, but you know what else he's going to bring? He's going to bring justice. 
And he's going to bring a place where we say, why would we ever want to address anyone else but you? Why is suffering happening in the world? Why is suffering happening to you? Why are you going through the specific pain you're going through? I don't know, but I know who knows. And I know he is the God who hears. And he's the God who hates, and he's the God who gives hope, and he's the God who hides us. So let's do that.